Thank you so much. You may be seated. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6. And this morning we want to look at verses 8 through 13. Leviticus chapter 6, verses 8 through 13. For those of you that have started coming to Grace or watching on the line the last couple of weeks, my name is Jeff Eastwood. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Baptist Church. It's been three Sundays since I preached, so I just wanted to let everybody know who I was. Um, so thankful for Luke and his walking us through the sin offering two Sundays ago. And then uh, Brother Herb, a good dear friend of mine and one of our missionaries, walking through the guilt offering last Sunday, bringing us into uh, Leviticus 6 and up through and including verse 7. As we mentioned, the first part of, uh, or I should say from Leviticus 1 to the first part of, of chapter 6 is the five different types of offerings that the nation of Israel was to offer to God. Each had its own function, its own rationale, and its own ritual uh, behind it. Now we are going into chapter 6, the rest of 6 and 7, to see these offerings again, albeit in a slightly different order, but primarily focusing on the role of the priests. And so as they prepare the offerings, as they offer the offerings, uh, sprinkle the blood and these types of things, there are other rituals and other responsibilities that fall on the priests. And so the focus shifts from the worshipers, the Israelites, to the priests and the, the priestly role. And so the sermon this morning is on this idea of that which is sacred, the idea of that which is set apart, that which is holy and righteous before God. And the priests then stand in that role. They are not superior to anyone else in the nation of Israel, but they are called upon to fulfill a different role, a different function. And so Aaron and his sons and the tribe of Levi are set apart to God to serve in this way. And we'll get into that in just a moment. It is interesting when we talk about things that are sacred. Oftentimes we ourselves make a division between that which is sacred and what we call secular. And yet, in actual fact, all is sacred, all is made by God, and all is to bring glory to Him. And so a firm, sacred, secular designation or division truly isn't uh, rankly biblical. But as we think about that which is sacred, it is interesting to note that in our cultures, one of the easiest ways to discover what is sacred is to look at what our culture mocks. And one of the ways we can see what our culture mocks is the words that are used in order to swear in our cultures. We would call it profanity. And that is because it is profane, is an attempt to take that which is sacred and bring it down to that which is common. It is to desecrate that which God has marked as holy. This also then leads to the definition of vulgarity. We would say that swear words are vulgarity. They're vulgar. Vulgar, of course, means common. That's what it means. And so it's to take something that is sacred, and to treat it as common. I am not Quebecois, but in talking to my Quebecois friends, certainly from a generation or two ago, 
some of the most vile curse words in the province of Quebec would have been that which desecrated the Roman Catholic Church. Elements of the Roman Catholic Church and worship within the Roman Catholic Church would have been used as particularly uh, harsh swear words. And so an attempt by a culture to profane, to vulgarize that which is sacred. What is interesting in our culture is that primarily those words that are used to swear or to curse are certainly God's name, which is obviously problematic and a violation of one of the Ten Commandments, but also, interestingly enough, the human body, its parts, its functions, and things that you can do with it. And so God has called humans sacred. He has said that humans are made in the image of him. And we in our culture have attempted to mock that idea, to denigrate and even desecrate the human body. The human body which is made in the image of God and humans themselves which are to show forth God and his character. We unfortunately here in Canada are being inundated by and pushed into a culture of death. A celebration of death, both at the beginning of life and at its end. And yet we know that our God is a God of life. And so it is interesting and intriguing that our culture consistently profanes that which God has called sacred. One of the ways they do that is to make a mockery of him and the human beings that he has made in his image. And so let us go into the passage then this morning, Luke, or sorry, Luke, Leviticus chapter 6, verses 8 through 13, and we'll see this idea of that which is sacred throughout this portion of scripture. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command Aaron and his sons saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning. And the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it it shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. This is the word of God. And so in the first place, we see in this passage the reality of the priesthood. This is a concept that we've been previously introduced to, both in the book of Leviticus and certainly in the book of Exodus. But here it comes into sharp focus because God now speaks directly to Moses to say, now speak to Aaron and his sons. And so we have this idea of the priesthood. What do the priesthood do? Well, in the first place, they represent Israel before God. They are to be those individuals that are in the role and function of representing Israel with all of its sinfulness before a thrice holy God. They are to accept their offerings. They are to take the blood that is shed by those offerings and sprinkle it on the various things that require ceremonial cleansing. They are to perform the function 
of a priest, which is a go-between, a mediator, an arbiter, as Job would say, between us and God. What an amazing function this is. What a sacred responsibility and role this is. And I think in the second place, then, they are to be guardians of God's holiness. There are three classes of angels that we're aware of from Scripture, archangels, seraphim, and cherubim. And it is the cherubim that are protectors of God's holiness. The seraphim being the proclaimers of God's holiness, Isaiah 6 and other passages. But the cherubim are the protectors of God's holiness. It was a cherub that kept the uh, first two humans from coming back into the Garden of Eden, that flaming sword that kept them from paradise once they were removed from it. It was the cherubim that were woven into the fabric of the veil that separated the the holy place from the most holy place. And it was two cherubim that had their outstretched wings touching each other over the top of the Ark of the Covenant. All throughout the tabernacle, these cherubs, Contrary to modern imagination where they're babies with chubby cheeks, these cherubs are actually uh, angels that protect the holiness of God. And in the same way, the priests were guardians of God's holiness. They were the individuals who were to be symbols of God's purity. They were to do things in an orderly and diligent and reverential fashion so that God's holiness was protected. So the nation of Israel would perform their atonement sacrifices and that they would be performed correctly so that the weight of the holiness of the triune God would be felt by and recognized by the nation of Israel. Well, what does this have to do with us? Well, in the first place, praise God that his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our high priest. These priests were continually offering sacrifice because they needed to offer sacrifice for themselves as well as those whom they were serving. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is holy in himself because he is 100% God and 100% man. And so as such, he can be and is our great high priest. Meaning that when he was on the cross and cried out from there, it is finished, the veil in the temple was ripped in half from top to bottom, opening up the way for sinners into the presence of God, into the most holy place, because his sacrifice, that once and for all sacrifice, had been made on our behalf. And so he is our great high priest. But we go one step further, Peter uses priestly language as it relates to us, as does the Apostle Paul. We are priests. Not only is Jesus our high priest, but now the priestly role is not designated for a select few, for an upper class, for a separate class. There's no designation between clergy and laity. All believers are priests before God. All believers are to be representatives of God, guardians of God's holiness, and represent those in their sphere of influence before God. And so the question before us is, if we are in Christ here this morning, how are we doing at representing those whom we know and love, those in our sphere of influence, family and friends? Are we representing them before God? How often do we pray for those in our sphere of influence? How often do we pray for our enemies? How often do we pray for our elected officials? 
and not imprecatory prayers? How often do we take seriously the role that God has given us through Jesus Christ as priests? Wherever we are, what community we live, surrounded by neighbors, family, friends, acquaintances, we are to represent them before God. We are to spend much time in prayer, asking God for his grace and mercy on their behalf. And then how seriously have we taken our role as guardians of God's holiness? How often do we participate in the mockery of God and how often do we profane that which God has called sacred? As we look at our entertainment choices, as we look at our posts on social media, as we look and think back on conversations that we have had, do we understand that we ought to be having those conversations with this thought in mind that we are God's representatives in this moment? We are to guard and protect his holiness. Not because he can't guard and protect his holiness himself, he is well capable of doing so, but because in his grace and his mercy, he has, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, tasked us with this amazing and awesome responsibility. God's judgment falls on those who reject him. And so do we understand our role as someone who has been accepted by him to represent him in the spaces that we occupy. In the second place then we notice in the rest of verse nine as well as in 12 and 13, the presence of God. This of course is sacred. The burnt offering 9b shall be on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. Verse 12, the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it, it shall not go out. Verse 13, fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually, it shall not go out. If God says something once, it needs to be listened to. If he repeats it and says it three times, it certainly should be noted. And so this idea of this altar never going out, this fire on the altar, sorry, never going out, Every morning when the priests would awake, one of their first roles and responsibilities is to stoke the fire, to get the embers going again into a roaring blaze that is capable of consuming the first offering of the morning, which is that burnt offering. It was to be offered every single morning. And on the Sabbath, on Saturday, on the sacred day, on the day of rest, it was to be offered twice. Two burnt offerings were to be offered. And then every evening at dusk, twilight, at the end of the day, according to Jewish reckoning, a burnt offering was to be offered again before everybody settled down for the evening. And once again on the Sabbath, two burnt offerings in the evening. And perhaps throughout the evening, the priest would need to wake up at intervals and put more logs on the fire. This fire was to be continually burning under the altar. As noted by one of the commentators as I was studying, that you could open your tent flap as an ancient Israelite in the wilderness, and whether it was 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., the light of that fire was flickering. What does this mean? It means the presence of God is continually with his people. Certainly his actual Shekinah glory was with his people in the cloud by day and in the fire by night, but this fire on the, burnt, uh, on the bronze altar, this fire of the burnt offering was continually going. Three times God says, do not let the fire go out. Every Israelite had a visible, tangible picture 
that God's presence was always with them. This, of course, did at least two things. It should have brought them comfort, but it should also bring with it reverential fear and awe. God is with us. God is with us. Notice in the second place that the presence of God is all-encompassing and it is all-consuming. It's all-encompassing in the sense that every part of the Israelites' day, every part of the Israelites' life was to be lived with the understanding that God's presence was there in their midst. Every attitude that they had, every word that they spoke, everything that they did was to be done with the understanding that God was there, God was among them. Thanks be to God for the sacrifice of the burnt offering, the atoning sacrifice that took care of their sins without which they would be consumed by the presence of God because it is all-consuming. Our God is a consuming fire, the writer of the book of Hebrews says. And note that on this altar, the burnt offering, this particular offering, as we've already studied from Leviticus 1, was completely consumed. Nothing left for the worshiper, nothing left for the priest. God took all of this offering, including the very ashes that this offering produced. Even they were gods. And so we have this sense then of perpetual worship, that all the time the nation of Israel had this tangible, visible reminder at the bronze altar, the opening of the tabernacle complex, there was always fire burning. All offerings were continually being offered. The two burnt offerings, and then other burnt offerings, peace offerings, grain offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, these were continually being offered. I think in our modern context, far too often, we view what we just did moments ago, musically speaking, as worship. Now that is very true. That is a form of worship. And what I mean by that is we've made that exclusively worship. It's synonymous with the word worship. And so we, make, we say phrases like, I'm going to church this morning to worship. I'm going to a worship event, a worship meeting. We've even substituted the word music for worship. Now it is very true that this is and hopefully was worship to God. But this alone is not only what we do or what we mean by worship. Worship is everything that we do or ought to be. Whatever we do, Paul says in Corinthians, whether we eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Do all in worship to God. And certainly the offerings that we have viewed are a picture of that. Thank you, God, for a good harvest, grain offering. Thank you, God, for fulfilling a promise, answering a prayer, peace offering. Even the other offerings were noted as being part of worship. Gratitude is worship. Generosity is worship. Love and kindness and compassion, all of that which reflects who God is, is worship. And we would do well to remember that. We are always in the presence of God, and God's presence is always in us as believers through his Holy Spirit. Now we skip verses 10 and 11. And that is our third point this morning, the idea of acknowledging the sacred. There's something here in this ritual 
that gives us an even deeper dive into this reality of that which is sacred, sanctified, set apart, holy to God. Notice in the first place that linen garments were to be worn when the priests were in the tabernacle complex. And linen garments represent purity. This pure white linen worn by the priests is again a visible, tangible reminder of the purity of God, the holiness and righteousness of God, without blemish, without stain, without sin. This, of course, worn by the priests is only a picture thereof because the individuals wearing it were still sinners. But it was a visible, tangible reminder of the purity of God. And we are told in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ that we will be clothed in linen, pure and white, at the end of it all, symbolic of Jesus Christ the righteous, who has borne our sins, that although they were red like crimson, he has made us pure like white snow. Thanks be to God for his righteousness and his holiness being applied to us in the payment for our sins being taken by Jesus Christ. But these priests, as they performed their priestly duties, must wear these linen garments, representing the purity and holiness of God. Notice these linen garments are restricted to the tabernacle. If they were going to take the ashes that were the residue from the burnt offering outside the camp to a clean place, they had to remove their priestly garments, put on other clothes, their street clothes, we might say, their normal clothes. Then they could take the ashes away from the tabernacle complex, put them in a clean place outside the camp, then return and get changed yet again back into their priestly garments. This idea of the sacred God's presence, holy and righteous, in the middle of the camp, in the middle of the people of Israel. Notice in the third place that everything is given to the Lord. They were not to dig through the ashes to find something that maybe wasn't wholly consumed by the fire. All of the burnt offering was consumed before a thrice holy God. And then even the ashes that were left over after it was sacrificed are also God's which, as we've already seen, is a picture and a symbol of us being fully God's. Everything that we have and everything that we are is his. He owns us twice if we are in Christ. He owns us first because he made us. And so we owe our lives and everything we have and are to him. And then he has remade us in Jesus Christ. We've been born again through Jesus Christ, the righteous, if we are in Christ this morning, which means that we owe him our lives a second time. Everything we are and everything we have is his because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. It's all his. Nothing left. All given to him. And then notice in the fourth place, worship is orderly, diligent, and reverential. There is an orderliness to the worship. There is a prescribed way that the worship is to take place. Again, I think sometimes in our, at least Western Christianity, spontaneity has been, become synonymous with godliness. That the only way, the only true, authentic way to worship God is by being spontaneous in the moment. We do not find that in the Old Testament. We do not find that in the New Testament. In fact, Paul, as he writes to the church at Corinth, says in chapter 14 that God is a God of order and all things are to be done decently and in order. Does that mean that there can be no spontaneity in the worship of God? Absolutely not. But what it does mean is to be careful 
that we don't remove orderliness and replace it with pure spontaneity. In fact, the opposite, I would say, is true. We start with and promote orderliness in our worship. Spontaneity may occur, but there is an order to how God is to be worshipped, and we see that in this passage, certainly among others. Notice that it's diligent. The priests never sat down. As you read in Exodus, the building of the tabernacle complex, there are no chairs. There's no place for the priests to sit. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that the priests are standing daily. They stand because they are always serving. They're always making sure that the fire is ready to go for offering. The fire never goes out. They're removing ashes and then coming back. They're there to assist any worshiper that brings a sacrifice. They're always working. They're diligent. And of course, they are reverential. There is a heavy sense on the priests that they are in the presence of God. And in fact, as we're going to see in a few weeks, the two, son, two of the sons of Aaron do not take this seriously, and it costs them their lives. There ought to be an awe and a fear and a reverence in the presence of God, and we ought to realize that we're in his presence as his presence is in us every single moment of every single day. And yet if we, as believers in God, have lost reverential fear and awe of him, how do we possibly expect anybody who does not believe in him to have that? We, as guardians of God's holiness, should be the first, should be the front lines of recognizing the awe and the fear that should come from knowing him and from being in his presence and his presence being in us. And yet far too often we mock what God calls sacred. We laugh at what God calls holy and we thereby profane what God has deemed sacred. May God help us. And so what is our response then to all of this this morning? I have a question for all of us. Are we guarding the sacred in a culture that celebrates the profane? Our culture does not believe in God. They are either atheists or functional atheists. They are doing the best they can to run from him and from all that he has said about how things are supposed to operate. This does not make them any worse than us. Because we are sinners the same as they. However, one great difference, one eternal difference, is that God in his mercy and grace, and only because of his mercy and grace, has seen fit to redeem us. He's seen fit to open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to understand that Jesus Christ the righteous is the Messiah, is the one. The one who lived righteously, died sacrificially, and then rose triumphantly and ascended gloriously. He is the only Lord and the only Savior. And the only reason we believe that here this morning is because of his grace and mercy in our lives. But because we do, do we take that seriously? Do we understand that, yes, Jesus loves us as we are, but loves us enough to not leave us there? We understand that what God is doing in us, in our lives, is transforming us every moment of every day to become more like him, more holy, more righteous, more loving, more truthful, more kind, more compassionate, more gentle, more others 
oriented, more humble? Do we understand these things? and Do we take them seriously in our lives? The world around us is running to God's judgment. The world around us is sprinting towards hell. And we have been called by God. We have been recipients of the mercy and grace of God to be his sons and daughters and to stand in their way proclaiming and standing for that which is sacred, that which is holy and righteous. As someone has said, it may have been Spurgeon, if anyone is going to hell, let them go past us and our pleading and our proclaiming and our praying. Instead of abandoning those around us, may we understand our role that God has given us because of Jesus Christ. And so how are we guarding the sacred in a culture that celebrates the profane? God, give us more grace. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you. and thank you for this passage of Scripture in which we see once again the care that you take. You desire a relationship with us, but you also desire that which is best. And what is best is not to lower your standards or to you to cease to be who you are, but instead it is to draw us up by your grace and mercy to you. It is to set us apart, to sanctify us, to be making us more like you each and every day for your glory. So Father, I pray that as we struggle to understand the times in which we live, that as we struggle with frustration and anger, division, perhaps even fear, as we struggle with just not letting our culture go and quote-unquote getting what they deserve, completely and radically misunderstanding that but for your grace, that is where we are headed as well. Instead, Father, give us compassion. Give us love. Help us to see those around us as sinners just like us, desperately in need of a work of your grace and mercy. We are not their judges. There is only one judge, and that is you. Father, we are simply beggars, sharing with other beggars where to find food, the bread of life and the living water, Jesus Christ. Father, we have a high task. It is an impossible task because we ourselves are not perfect. And yet, in Christ we are. You are making us who we are. You are making us to be more like we are in Christ. And may that show to those around us. Not with campaigns and harsh words. Not with satire and mockery. Not with contempt and condescension. But, oh God, may it be with humility and love. May we bring the truth the way we always bring it in love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.